Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. A marriage and family therapist with a doctorate in Christian counseling for more than a decade, Linda Hart Streeter has been writing for her entire career. But she had a very particular reason for publishing her book, The Power of Conflict. What was it, Linda? This book here came out of the past uh, from 2014 through 2020. I worked as a counselor mediator in family court. That's what made me write this book because I mediated so much conflict. Do you find that people with money tend to keep the conflict going longer than necessary? Because it just seems to me like when we're covering celebrity divorces, like Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, it's like, could you two shut up and think about your children for five seconds and stop taking each other to court? Yeah, it's it's sad, but it happens. with the rich and famous. And I find two people who don't have money will spend their last taking each other back and forth to court and still not recognize the damage that it does to their children. The collateral damage is you have children who fall in the category of the ace of success net when they have been exposed to ongoing conflict and chaos, what it does to them mentally over time. You have um, college funds that are destroyed for people who don't have as much money as the celebrities, of course. I've seen them bankrupt their own resources, taking each other back to court, and that is even down to uh, their children's college fund. Um, There's this one story in particular that I remember whereby these two people were going back and forth with each other and um, as I try to, you know, you know, in my intervene and, and uh, really getting them on the same page so that they can start hearing each other. One of the first things that came out was from one parent who stated, I thought you said A, I thought you said B, and, um, and vice versa from the other parent. And what I find as a factor two that drives conflict is that lawyers want to win. And in this particular case, these two people, as they started talking to each other, as opposed to um, talking through their lawyers, they discovered that there was information being transferred back and forth that they were not aware of and that they didn't necessarily consent to. And as it continued, you know, how long the conflict had had been going, the other collateral damage to that was one parent indicating that they had spent the children's college money, child's college money, and they both started to cry. So the factors can be great. That's just one small example of collateral damages. But one example of how lawyers are more interested in just making money than finding a resolution. Yeah, 
they want to. Yeah, exactly. It's unfortunate, but it happens. Does it just feel like more people are in family court now than ever? It's true. It's true. It's true. And as a counselor mediator for family court, I got to see it firsthand. And we have about 13 clinicians on staff to include our clinical supervisor and director. So, and uh, we were never lacking any cases to come through. And we were booking in advance. And that's just on a smaller level. So when I transitioned and I started getting involved with uh, the family court in Georgia, since I'm now back on the East Coast here in Jacksonville, I've been looking at their program just to volunteer some. And yes, cases are constantly coming through. So when we hear about the 50% divorce rate, what we're really speaking to, you know, you know, in many of these cases are families or uh, with dependent children. And the way the systems are set up now, family court, because it's so overwhelming, and it's a huge burden for judges to make major decisions about someone else's life, their children's life, and they don't know you. So what they're, what we're finding in family court now is that most courts are really resorting to mediation. We can get them there and um, you know and especially if you're a mediator that's in the mental health field that tends to be you know it's more should I say humanity person-centered driven than it is about the law because you know and I understand attorneys they they look at the law, this is how they base decisions. But what I've heard firsthand from judges was that it does make a difference to, you know, because there's the emotional attachment. That's the trauma that's attached to it. So there are many factors that says we need to learn how to resolve conflict. We have to do better as adults. I started out talking about the 12, I call the 12 strategies for resolving conflict, and I have one client in my office and he goes no i think you should call it linda this is great i think you should call it 12 commandments for resolving conflict so i kind of came up with that but they are actually 12 strategies for resolving conflict and what i know because we're all human one of the things that i did do and it's the book really offers a holistic approach to resolving conflict that's really what it's all about but before we get to the 12 strategies there's something i talked about the 12 spiritual laws that governs the universe of the universe. And when we're in sync with those laws, we you know we live in a principle-driven universe. Just like the law of gravity, you, you know, you have the law of oneness. I talk about that. And I parallels these 12 spiritual laws. I had no idea it was going to come out this way, but I parallel those 12 spiritual laws with 12 strategies, principles for resolving conflict. So the book is loaded with just that. And before we get to that space of talking about the strategies and um, the spiritual laws, one of the things I cover perceiving that is about internal conflict. And and there is where I, I address silent trauma and um, things we can do to heal. Because most conflict, I would say conflict is really Real conflict where there are fights and animosity and all, that is an internal thing. 
Some people fight. It doesn't matter who they are. If they haven't dealt with, you know, those issues, suppressed issues in their life, trauma. Right. They haven't dealt with the issues that they brought to the marriage that they're not even aware of. Absolutely. They have not dealt with the issues and not many people do take time to go on their own self-discovery journeys. So the book is about how we find that space within ourselves. Why, if I'm angry, why am I really angry? Because everything outside of us is really about other people, places, and things. But what is really troubling us is what's going on within. And until we can face who we are, it's difficult to have, you know, a harmony in relationships when there is so much internal conflict. Because the moment we hear something or something happens that does not align with who I am within, you know, there's that incongruency if I'm forced to see it your way. And then if I can't force myself to see it that way, I'm angry about it. So people come together in relationships. You know, if you're 25 and 25, right there within itself, that's 50 years of history coming together that we never look at from that perspective. Right. And I think there's also a feeling I can take care of this. I can deal with this. And, you know, um, not realizing that maybe instead of dealing with it, you're just pushing it down and it doesn't come back until there's conflict. And then you're screaming or you're reacting in a way that's kind of like out of sync with what you're arguing about because it has nothing to do with what you're arguing about. It has to do with what you haven't mm -hmm. dealt with. Absolutely. I always say that everything outside of us that frustrate us, those are symptoms. The real problem lies within. It's so funny because, you know, my brother went into therapy uh, after his first marriage and his therapist told him, you know, to look at his life. And, you know, my parents, they're great parents. They had four kids. He was number three. And he went back to my mother and said, it's because of what you did when I was in Boy Scouts, you embarrassed me. <laughs> and I was like, is that what the therapist intended for you to go back to my mother who did the best she could with four kids? And say, it's your fault that my marriage broke up because, you know, you embarrassed me when I was a child and it was at this particular moment in Boy Scouts. Well, you, <laughs> you know, and the therapist did not mean any harm by that. But, you know, this and that's the power of therapy. That's why I'm so pro therapy. I tell people you need to talk to someone because. You know, like one of the greatest things we can do for ourselves is become aware. And see, when there's a lack of self-awareness, we pay no attention to what is really happening. It's always about one of, one of the things I'm writing on now. I'm writing something called how are you living inside out, outside in. And so inside out is the ability to have enough self-awareness, the ability to, uh, to have self-awareness that you understand who you are to the point that the slightest trigger or whatever, you're never looking outside for the answer. You're always looking within. Why does that trigger me? Why do I yell? Why do I, you know, so you, you get in more of you. And so what happens is that once you master yourself, 
conflict outside decreases and it minimizes. So what we're looking at in most cases, we are human beings walking around, believing things, we fight over things, we don't even know where they come from and why. Right. So if we take time out to deal with where we are and where we're being, and it's not about blaming our parents for it, it's about understanding that there was, those are the little things, and I talk about, I address that in the book where I talk about silent trauma. Because it's not like someone beat you or sexually abused you physically or whatever. The words that we use sometimes can create trauma. And, you know, we forget those things happen. So um, can you give me an example of one way to resolve conflict that I'm going to find in your book? Oh, I can give you... Well, sure. You can give me 12, obviously. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I... Okay, so a couple of things we talk about. We get into what is conflict, but let me just look. I'm going to flip over, and I think I'll just pull out the very first one. Here I talk about um, exercising emotional control. So when a person, if you're going to resolve conflict, one of the first things we have to do is be able to have a tough conversation. And you can only have tough conversations, sensitive conversations when your emotions are in control. So I address emotional uh, control, you know, what's your EQ? That's, and, and, and of course, I reference Goldman's book because he did great work on emotional control, emotional intelligence. But here, what what the goal here is to determine how you handle your very own emotions. Are you, you know, when it comes to communicating, are you a runner? Are you an avoider? You know, but and when uh, are you a fighter? Because when people cannot control their emotions, you're going to resort to the fight or flight or freeze moment. You know, and when you get there. That's what you do. So you can't you move past to have a discussion because your emotions say that I need to fight, I need to flight, I'm frozen, or I'm just going to avoid the conversation altogether. So this, the goal here is to, number one, to recognize how you handle your emotions. Number two, you know, you want to have a conversation. I tell, you know, uh, some of the steps in here would be, by the way, at the end of each chapter, I, I lay out um, some skill builders that's also included in the book. So under the skill builders, we um, talk about uh, skill building. For instance, I'll read skill builder for emotional control. This is a practical principle which demands self-regulations and emotional control. Stepping away from the situation provides an opportunity for several things. One, to take a time out to breathe. Do deep breathing, and I won't do all the details of that. Then go within, step two would be to go, go within to internalize your feelings. What am I feeling in this moment and why? So that third point would be to identify what it is you're really feeling. Is it pain, sadness, helplessness, fears, anger and what's the root of the anger what is it really all about and then step four would be to identify the root of the fear you know what is it you need to face what's the pain you know and using your brother as an example 
would have been in his marriage when he couldn't hold it all together. What was going on? What was what was triggering that? And through therapy, which it requires that sometimes because we're not good at resolving those issues or digging deeper without guidance from someone else. And then point five was just to rationalize your thoughts and your reactions. Determine if your thoughts are reasonable or not. What makes it reasonable, if you think it is? And how are your beliefs, thoughts, and actions attached to the current situation? That would be an example. There's other books, like how many books are out there about relationships, about resolving conflict? There are thousands of books out there um, about conflict. And um, I believe what sets my book apart is the fact that it's written from a perspective of holistic. Because what I want people to understand in this book is that we're a spiritual being. And we have the innate power and ability to create whatever we want in this life. Whatever you want in your relationships, you have the gift. You have been built and designed to have harmony in your relationships. So I think that part, when you can take that and intertwine it with practical steps that we can carry out, that's what separates my book and I believe makes it powerful. Hmm. Interesting. Can a couple overcome cheating? Yes. You know, is is anything possible? Yes, it's possible to forgive anyone. And not only is it possible, I will say this is needful for you to forgive. So let's go back to what I mentioned a moment ago about your spiritual self. This is your highest being. Your highest self is the spiritual aspect of who you are. And what happens oftentimes is that we don't yield to our higher self. And Dr. Wayne Dyer talks about it in a, in a form to use verbiage like living at a higher frequency versus a lower frequency. In his book, um, There's a Spiritual Solution to Every Problem. I read that one many years ago. And um, I so concur that you have to choose in life what frequency you want to live at. And forgiveness hangs out in how your frequency living. Um, Abraham Maslow talked about self-actualization. A self-actualized person lives at a higher frequency. They are more concerned about the greater good of all. They don't just live for themselves, you know. And there are 13 like attributes to a self-actualized person. Another um, uh, a person that I followed in the past was Dr. Miles Monroe, who was a minister. But he talked about living in a state of wholeness. And what he declares is that only whole people should come together. Only whole people are ready to be married. Because people who are half empty, meaning people who are injured, pe injured people who have not come to a sense of enlightenment, of self-actualization, find it impossible to live at the higher frequency self. So it's very possible, but it just means we have to work on ourselves and uh, recognize that um, just, just one point alone that unforgiveness 
when you hold unforgiveness in your heart toward anyone, it's like you drinking the, the poison and expecting someone else to die. They don't feel it, nor does it reside within their soul. It's the person who's carrying it. So it is needful to um, forgive. I'm sure you heard a lot of that in family court. Wasn't that at the root? Somebody stepped out for whatever reason, and then that's unforgivable. We can't go back. We, we can't go back. You know, and you don't have to go back to forgive someone. You know, and I think that's the part that we miss and what makes it difficult to resolve conflict because somewhere in there, people believe that if I you know, if I agree on a solution, it may not be all of my ideas. It may be part of my ideas. I talk about win-win solutions. And if you are parents and or two people splitting up, you have things that you own jointly, which will always be your children forever. Um, you know, you have to think of win-win solutions because if one side is a loser, it makes all of us a loser, including your children. Yeah. So you. You know, so we there are things that we have to do, and I think people or adults are going to have to be mature, more mature than that. And um, again, it's so inspired the book because I saw so much of it in family court. I, the one of the most disturbing things that I saw was um, acquaintances of ours who had gotten divorced, and the husband drops off the little kid, and I guess it was I think he was a toddler, and he was crying, and the mother looks at me and says. Oh, he just came from his father. And I was like, <laughs> why are you saying that in front of your child? That's still your, that's still your kid's yes. father. Yeah. And I think, you know, and it, it's sad as it is. You have people who are so broken. They don't get it. And that's all it is. We're talking broken adults. Right. That do not recognize the power of their words. And they do not recognize the power that their words have over their children. So this is when you start running, running into what's called alienation, where one parent is saying, oh, every time I picked them up, they're crying. But you make the assumption that they're crying because they're picking you up. Maybe they're crying because they want to stay. Right. Or you, we make these, these assumptions that they don't want to go with the other parent. And not recognizing that when alienation takes part, you know, it creates something in children that's called divided loyalty or complex loyalty. And if a child is dealing with complex loyalty, they are a little confused. They, they're under a lot of emotional distress because they're trying to please and be loyal to both parents. So they won't even enjoy one parent will let you know they enjoy being at the other parent. They may say they had a horrible experience because it aligns with what you believe. And they may tell the other parent they don't like being at your house because that's what that other parent wants to have. So they are really complex about their loyalty. And then you have kids who may suffer from divided loyalty where they start to expose the same hate toward the other parent as that parent does toward that other parent. In either way, it's detrimental to the children. So you worked in family court in Arizona. Now you're volunteering in Georgia. Are you basically retired at this point? Well, when I left family court, I was I'm, I'm I told people I'm semi-retired. So I don't work for anyone full time, but I contract with one agency where I do remote coaching. 
I do life coaching. And then on my own, I have my private practice still, of course. And I do um, marriage and family therapy. I do life coaching, relationship coaching. I do premarital counseling. I wish more people would do that. I have wonderful programs for that, that we can learn how to resolve conflict before we say, I do. We understand each other conflict style, resolution style, and some things we need to look out. So that's really great. But those are things I still do. That should be required along with the blood test. It could have saved. It should be. Right? A blood test, a little therapy. I say the same thing. Two things people should do. They should be required required before they get married to take marriage and family therapy. But I think it should be a mandate. Everyone has psychology 101. And if you're going to have children, you should have to take a parenting class. Absolutely. So are you doing book signings? I'm sure people know you and are excited about your book. Yes, I am putting some things into work. I have don't have all the details out yet, but I am going to be doing some book signing locally. What I'm finding with my mom, like she's very active in the book club at her church. And I'm tell mm-hmm. I'm telling everybody, go find that book club. Every church has a bunch of women and men even getting together at doing book yes. clubs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there, there's all kinds of groups that get together and are looking for an interesting book to read. And if they can, you know, have the author come and speak too, that's even better. And libraries. That's even better. Yeah. Libraries yeah. do those. Well, you, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing to do. And maybe I'll only even look at, I have a couple of them, two people that approach me already about um, my book and their book club. But I am definitely open to, you know, if you're, if you're, your mother, they have a book club at their church or whatever, because it's information here that we all need to know, because, you know, Christians, they fight too all the time, you know. You think? Oh, never saw that. Yeah. Yeah, it happens all the time. Oh, they they do. In fact, that's, look, I became a marriage and family therapist. I went back to school after I was divorced. And the reason I did, it was for me starting out, but because I was in leadership too in ministry, I saw it. I mean, the same chaos that um, the secular world have, you find right in the church because we've not learned how to live. People don't live abundantly because they've not learned how to apply principles. Right. Yep. You're very interesting, Linda. It was so nice to meet you. Likewise. (sighs) Bye-bye. Diane Lynn has written her first children's book. It's called Puff Puff with His Friends. Just one of many creative projects that keep you busy, right? Yes, I do. I'm an artist. I do abstract art. I crochet blankets for the Samaritan Inn, and I um, I make dolls for the homeless shelter in Westfield. Yeah, and I make dolls for people that are um, the hospital. I'm writing music. When did you decide to start writing? Um, well, I decided I was going to write a book when um, I went to Stratford Career Institute. Where is Stratford Career Institute? In um, Canada. Oh, okay. So you did it online? Yeah, I did it. I did it through the mail. Through the mail. So you were mailing stuff back and forth? Yeah. What kinds of things did you do for them? Uh, I wrote books. Adventure, The Legend of Scott Hill Town, about uh, two guys that go, they went up to the mountains and they found a diamond mine. What made you decide to start writing children's books? I, I just did. I just uh, started writing. Uh, I was inspired to write children's books through them, but my inspiration came from Stanley Park, 
with Puff Puff with his friends. That's near your home in Massachusetts? Ten-minute drive or so, 15-minute drive from my house. I was just uh, watching people feed feed the animals, I mean the ducks and, and the chipmunks, and I was inspired to write something about it. So how many characters did you come up with? Five. Two chipmunks, Pookie and Puff Puff, Chippy the squirrel, and Blossom the rabbit. And I... Uh, I just started writing it. Um, Puff Puff was on his way to go to go, to his girlfriend Pookie's house, and Chippy jumped out in front of him, and he asked Puff Puff if he could go with him, and Puff Puff said no. And Chippy was serious. If you don't let me go with you, then I'll never speak to you again. And Puff Puff said he didn't care. Puff Puff went to Pookie's house, and he knocked on the door, and... She said, who is it? And he says, it's Puff Puff. And she come out and she hugged Puff Puff. She opened the door and hugged him. Okay. And then Puff Puff asked what he, what she wanted to do today. And she said she wanted to go to the park to see Chippy and Chippy the squirrel and Blossom the rabbit. Well, there was another knock at the door and it was Chippy. Chippy wanted to see Pookie. So do both of these guys have a crush on Pookie? <laughs> No, no, he didn't. They're just friends. Okay. So then what happened? Okay, so Chippy knocked on the door. Pookie asked, who is it? And he he said it was Chippy. Pookie and Puff Puff made up. And then there was another knock at the door, which was Blossom. Who's Blossom? Blossom's a rabbit, another of their friends. Okay. They all decided to go to the park together. And to have fun at the park. What did they do at the park? They they ran and chased each other, and they were playing hide-and-seek. <laughs> Chippy and Puff Puff were in the tree, and uh, Chippy the squirrel and Blossom the rabbit was trying to find them. Are there more adventures with Puff Puff? Uh, yes, I've got another book with Puff Puff with his, with his new friend. Yeah. Spunky the skunk. Oh, does that get stinky? <laughs> so when is that one coming out? I don't know yet. It depends how well this book does. And it came out so good. I was so pleased with Page Publishing. I was so excited. It was at night when I seen the advertisement on the television, and I, I called them. I took the number down and called them, and they sent me information about what they do for books, and uh, I just got into doing it. I, I sent it in, and my book in, and they and they liked it. I gave a copy to the library here in Westfield. Oh, that's good. And they liked it. They said the children loved it. Well, Diane, I wish you the best of luck. Oh, good. Thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. A.D. Morrison has retired from the grain industry and selling food grain white oil that was sprayed on grain to keep the dust down. Now, the name of your book is Fight of a Unicorn, and somehow this all comes together. But first, we have to keep grain dust down because? Dust in a grain elevator, in a grain dust that's capsulated or enclosed, uh-huh. and you put a spark to it, it's as powerful as dynamite. Get out. I didn't know that. And there's about 
eight to 10 explosions at grain elevators annually. And the death rate is one to three. But most of them are, are harmless. I mean, they blow up, but blow the roof off or a hole in the big elevator. And they, you know, they're expensive to do that, but they're not, uh, they're not deadly, but they can be. So we become the, a major supplier to all the elevators in the Pacific Northwest when we live in, up in Bothell, Washington. And I, so I travel probably 50% of the time to, you know, to the grain belt, back to Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, the Dakotas, uh, Texas, and sold the food grade mineral oil in large quantities. And we controlled, oh, probably 85 to 90% of the dust at the elevators that use, use that process. What an interesting job. Yeah, it was. So uh, when did you start writing? Canada was trying to approve the process that I sold the oil for in 2020 when COVID hit. And because I was, quote, a non-essential visitor, I could not go into Canada. And I had all of the U.S. business that I felt that I could service, you know, correctly. And so all of a sudden I had nothing to do, you know. <laughs> when the COVID hit, you couldn't go to Canada unless you were, quote, essential. Yep. Because I dealt with two-hour time zone difference, I'm up at 5.30 every morning talking to these people back there and, I got just got bored, and for years I've told my wife, I said, this is a little-known fact, but it happened. This is a little-known fact that happened, and this, and this, and finally she said, quit bugging me with those or put them together in a book and uh, write it down. <laughs> so I started doing some research and came up with the, the vehicle to tie them all together was the main character in, in the book that I wrote. And I did a lot of research. Thank you, Google. And looked up things. And of course that when you do research, if you have an open mind, you, uh, it just keeps expanding and expanding. And I wound up with, what I thought was a good way to tie them all together, and that, that's what the book was. And that became Flight of a Unicorn. Flight of a Unicorn. <laughs> What's the name of In, your, what'd you call your main character? Alex McNeil. The story is that in the, um, way back in the early 1800s, I probably started in the 1700s, the people that lived in the, I call them the Hebrides, but they call them the Hebrides, islands of Scotland. Right. They sent people to live on the mainland and warn them when the English or the lowlanders were coming to try to control them just after the Highland cleansing. 
and that was in, no, 1647. The Highland Cleansing? King George and the Lowlanders attacked all of the Highlanders, and they literally would annihilate a complete clan to take over their land. They would kill man, woman, and child. Oh. And the book starts, Alex's grandmother becomes indentured, and she's raped, becomes pregnant with Alex's father, but winds up in a better situation in the, with the family in London. She saves the real son's life, so they take pity on her and educate her son, who's a whiz at banking. He gets sent to the United States, moves around a couple times. He's in Charleston just prior to the war between the states breaking out. Well, in the research I did, I found out that in the early 1860s, Brazil actually went out and recruited farmers to come to Brazil. And that uh, several of the southern plantation owners loaded all of their stuff on ships, including their slaves, and moved to Brazil and started the Brazil cotton industry. Okay. So Alex was two years old when this happened. Then it all pops over to when he's 29 years old and a farmer in his wife and daughter died from cholera after a huge storm and a storm washes up a sea captain being tortured on his land the sea captain tells him if he will take information to his wife back in london that he will give him some papers in a uh, safe deposit box in london in He can do what he wants with them, but if he's clever enough, he can make a lot of money with them. He goes from Brazil to London, gives the stuff to the the widow, and looks in the box and finds out that the grandfather, the father, and the 60-some-year-old captain were smugglers. They had saved all of the original manuscripts of all the smuggling they had done. He goes to Oban, Scotland, which is a real town and a famous place there. And he goes there to see where his grandmother had been born and decides to use these manifests to enhance his financial position And what he does is he takes them to the companies and offers them to them as historical documents for their company records. And because he never asks for money, he just asks them if they want them or not. He said, and if you don't want them, the good captain wants me to give them to the authorities And several of these involved treason against the English government. And because treason is never forgotten, the people would say, well, maybe we should have those for our company records. 
if you'll sign a paper that says any additional manifests that show up will be considered uh, extortion or blackmail. So he doesn't give a crap, you know. He he just takes the money and goes out, and he gets substantial money. But in Oban, he meets uh, a veteran, the retired guy uh, that wants to start a store. Well, and the blacksmith who wants to help improve the area. So they start a, decide to start a business because he's got this money now. And there's, of course, there's the dastardly McGee's that are after everybody. But he cannot stand, because of his grandmother's history with indenture, he cannot stand to have people's children indentured. And so he, the one person that was watching his his father's small farm, their six-year-old boy was indentured, and he couldn't stand it. So he went and found a town lawyer who turns out to be a real advocate for him and gets a paper that says, if you paid the indentured amount in full, the indentured person was released. Okay. So anyway, he pays the full thing and brings the indentured boy back, but the bad guy from the McGee's can't stand it, so he sends one of his cronies to eliminate Alex, and he stabs him, and they have a fight, and of course Alex wins, and, and but now he's wounded, and they take him up to his room, they get the nurse, and of course, the nurse turns out to be absolutely beautiful and sews him up, and they become an item, and the story just goes on. There. The bottom line is that he cannot stand the people having a thumb on him with no hope for the future. And so him and his partners work to improve the plight of the Highlanders from all of the submission items that had been forced on them over the years. It's it's just a story about how people work together to make things better. There's not that much violence in it. It's more what really would happen in a day-to-day situation by following the golden rule and doing the right thing. You wind up in this liking the characters. To be honest with you, it well when I started writing it, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And the first book wound up being over 800 pages. And at the end of the book, I put in about six or seven pages of historical facts that are used in the book that are absolutely true. And all the places in it are true. All the dates are true. You did a lot of work there. So wait a minute. Is this two books or one book? Actually, by the time I finished, it wound up being three books. So this is a trilogy. It could be considered a trilogy. I have only published the first book, which just came out like a month ago. All right. When you put all three of them together, it's uh, about 650,000 words in the three books. That's a lot of words. Yeah. And we're calling you A.D. Morrison, right? Yeah, that's what 
I went by, my name's Archie. All right, Archie. Archibald, and I just thought A.D. would be easier. All right, Archie, listen, you have a great day. Okay, well, I appreciate your call. You got it. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.